This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. Domestic violence remains a scourge of society, with shocking attacks and brutality continuing on thousands of women around Australia. Griffith Criminology Institute's Dr Robin Holder is hoping to help change that by exploring the role of victims in criminal justice and giving them a voice in the often fierce policy debates about what rights are owed them. In this episode of The Gender Card, Robin tells how she's combined 20 years of public policy experience with academic research to hopefully change the system and bring more justice to the victims of gendered violence. Robin, thank you for joining us on the Gender Card. I'm so delighted to be here, part of this wonderful uh, gender equity event and to share all the fabulous gender equality research that's being done at Griffith. Well, here we are at the Macarac campus, surrounded by the luxurious bush that Macarac campus is renowned for. How did you make that transition? Where did you start? Because, of course, you had quite a successful practice-led career before you came into research. Yeah, I came um, to the academy late because I'd had a long professional career. Um, The joy of what I came uh, from was an extraordinary job as a statutory advocate for crime victims' rights. My role in that job was to protect and promote the rights of people as crime victims when they became involved in justice processes. Sounds like quite a daunting role, Robin. It it was a fabulous job because I learned so much from people about why justice is important to them as individuals, to us as community, and how much the professionals in the system struggled to find ways to connect with that social and community meaning when everything what they were doing was about processing volume, getting cases through courts efficiently, quickly, you know, getting all the right paperwork to the right decision maker at the right time. So kind of complicated ways in which members of the public talked about justice and what they wanted and how they struggled to understand what they were confronted with. It, it was just the most fabulous learning. It sounds like it would have been quite confronting to see both those sides really are kind of clashing in the middle essentially because it must be so desensitising for people who are going through that volume as you say of what they've got to deal with. I think for the practitioners, for the professionals, the police and the prosecutors, the court officers and judges, uh, I mean, they equally are passionate about justice. Mm. But it's a system of managing volume. One uh, Supreme Court judge said to me once, we've just made it so complicated. I think that is a problem because the professionals are dealing with so much. And as you can imagine, the worst that humans can throw at each other murder sexual abuse domestic violence 
you have to step back to a certain extent to protect your own sanity and self. Mm. You're seeing the worst of human nature, really. And at the same time, you know, people who come, members of the public who come in, it's their first time. Mm. So that's the... You have people who are kind of inured to it, who it's their daily work to see awfulness and ordinary people who come in thinking this is really important this is really important what I'm doing that's what the bridge that I felt I needed to make a lot because when people become involved in the criminal process generally you know the system says oh you're just a, a victim but people come in as community members, as fathers and sisters. They come in as taxpayers. They come in as political animals who see community institutions, who've got an opinion about how those community institutions function. And, you know, think that they might recognize what's going to happen. And they're completely flummoxed when it's so confusing and they have no place they have no rights no rights Robin that's surprising and shocking to hear it is an extraordinarily surprising thing when you think that the criminal justice process is such an exercise of institutional power over ordinary civilians we understand that defendants have rights and we could, any high school student could tell you they have the right to be silent, they have the right to legal counsel, they have the right to a fair trial, they have the right to be brought before a, an independent decision maker within a reasonable time. If you were to ask that same high school class about the rights of a crime victim, Imagine you were assaulted if you were out on a Saturday night. Imagine if your car was stolen. Imagine your best friend was raped. What rights would you would immediately come to mind? My guess is that people would flounder to think what that what they would be. Or they might say something like, "Oh, victims have the prosecutor standing up for them, the public prosecutor." And this is the number one thing that hits people when they come in, if they might meet the prosecutor who's dealing with the case, that person, and they say, can you do such and such, as if that person might be your lawyer, and the public prosecutor says, I don't represent you. What do they represent then, Robin? I represent the state. Mm. I represent the community. You are a witness for the Crown. Or, more brutally, as a senior prosecutor once said to me, the victim is cannon fodder. So it's for members of the public coming into the system, and again I stress, it actually doesn't matter if you're male or female, adult or child, black or white, it's the structure of the system that says you are merely an instrument for the prosecution to prove this offence. And that's when individuals, victims, then say, well, what am I here for then? What, what's this all about? <laughs> and for my role, my previous role as an advocate, 
us. I came to think somehow that the job was in part about a civics education process, mm. that I'm not telling people that this you're being educated in how the system works. What we're describing is, I might say, tell me why you might you contacted the police about this matter or tell me why, what you think you'd like to achieve out of this process. And you would get a whole range of different motivations. Generally, they could be divided uh, into three main domain. Those which are about a sense of public duty. The words that people might use would be, oh, I don't want this to happen to anyone else, or this type of violence shouldn't happen and I can contribute, so forth. A second domain might be something in relation to the accused person themselves, and the words that a person might use would be, well, I want him to get help. I want him to understand that, whatever. Um, or I want him to get punished. Uh, and a third domain might be something in relation to themselves. I don't want to feel unsafe, for example. Um, I would like um, justice. So these, the ways in which people would talk about their motivations becomes part of an understanding of that I'm here not only as a victim who's been wronged, I'm here participating in a process that's about our community values, how we govern ourselves as a society and how we can better work that's, as a society. That's bigger than me. That's bigger than me. I'm participating in something. Was that comforting for people or did it frustrate people, I suppose, well, a when they realised that? Yes. A bit of both. And, and, and you know, n nobody is a completely ideal citizen. Mm. Uh, we have that tension mm. all the time in whatever we do about what am I going to get from doing this civic thing and what is the larger group of people going to get. We have that tension all the time. It doesn't matter in politics, in uh, legal processes, whether the park is going to be created here or the type of education we provide at a university. Perhaps we don't know as much about our civic rights as we we should. I think we've, we see these programs on TV and I think we get a pretty good understanding from these American crime shows, but really there's probably a lot more to it than that. There's a hell of a lot more to it than that. And I think even though my research focuses very much on what ordinary people say and experience about legal processes, the connection goes way beyond that to how we feel connected to our public institutions, what we know about our public institutions, how much we trust them, how much we think they do the job that we have set them up for. And many commentators describing the challenges that democratic institutions face presently talk a lot about civics education. I think the danger here is that 
it can sound as if the public is ignorant and need to be educated. That's not the type of civics education that I certainly think about and I don't think many commentators are. What I think is that it's uh, needed is much more of a dialogue and active engagement between certainly between users of services, here victims and accused people, um, but more broadly those of us who, who have an interest uh, that our public institutions should function justly, should function fairly, um, as well as function efficiently and uh, effectively. And to remind people, like the prosecutor, you mentioned that there are people behind that that facade, that it's not just going through the cannon fodder and, and pushing people through the system, I suppose. Too. No, that's right. And I think one of the challenges uh, in my field, where I work a lot on gendered violence and how we deal with that um, is that we've somehow think we can construct justice processes that don't harm victims anymore. Now, obviously we don't want to set up institutions and processes designed to harm, <laughs> but I think having a harm focus or a harm prevention focus can lead us up a blind alley. Yeah. By that I mean we, we become overprotective. We think that we should try and massage people away from a difficult, uncomfortable encounter in a process uh, where we're having to figure out difficult questions of guilt and innocence. Now, I might be sounding a bit um, unhelpful, and you might think this strange from somebody who's worked for so many years with so many uh, people who've been victims, um, but we can't massage away the discomfort of dealing with conflict, yeah. of dealing with differences of opinion. We, because, because what tends to happen is that the people who need to be present in those difficult conversations are kind of put into a private room, kept safe, kept removed. That's, and then they're not involved. Then they have no direct avenue for to say what they think needs it's to happen. disempowering for them. That's one way of describing mm. it. It is disempowering. Being victimised is pretty darned awful. If it's a sexual assault or if it's an assault, uh, street mm. assault, or if your loved one has been uh, killed, it's devastating. And then it's hard again to put yourself into that public place. So just let's try and set it up so that we can make things easier for people. Not more comfortable necessarily, <laughs> but a bit easier. A thing, for example, that just 
sends me off <laughs> is that we have constructed a range of different processes to enable people to give their testimony by remote TV or with a supported interpreter or some other means to make it easier. But do we just make this routinely available for people? Do we just, do we not say, oh, this is a fantastic civic uh, responsibility you're undertaking, we're going to do everything we can to support you in doing it? No! We say, oh, you have to be defined as a vulnerable victim. You have to show us through psychology assessments that you are vulnerable or traumatised. Then you might be eligible and then it's up for the judge to decide whether or not it's in the interests of justice that you should have those facilities. And you think, what? <laughs> what? So we're making a hard process harder rather than a hard process easier. And this leads to your research and it yep. was really the first time that someone had really looked at this in depth and how to bridge that disconnect. Yeah, you know. I think uh, a, another reason why I became involved in the academy after practice, I was so irritated by what I perceived to be poor research about victims in uh, justice processes. In particular, the methods that people, uh, researchers tended to use was that they would interview people just once. More often than not, they might interview people at the end of the justice process what we would say a retrospective interview. So people would be asked their opinion about what just happened and what do you think and what's your assessment of that. The idea of a prospective study, to me it was a method to show what the people that I had worked with over all of those years had taught me. That is, when you come first to the gates of justice, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. All you know is what you've come from. Mostly you know you've come from this situation that you think needs some uh, to be addressed in some way. Uh, and you, the researcher can ask you, so why did you make this choice? to come here because most crime victims don't. Most, uh, in my study, most domestic violence victims do not. Most sexual assault victims do not. It's oh. a very small and proportion of people. And why is that? Because of all the, all the reasons <laughs> we've, all the been, reason we've about. been talking about. It's so darn hard. Uh, and uh, people are scared by it. Uh, you know, they read the news as much as anybody and they think maybe it wasn't that serious or they don't want to get the other person into trouble. There's so many different reasons. They know they'll be judged. They know they'll be judged. Whichever way they do it, there'll be a good victim or a bad victim, a deserving victim or a not deserving victim. They know whatever they do, they'll get it somehow. But um, to ask people prospectively before they enter a process, what, what would you like to see happen? It gives you a sense of what's critically important for people at that point in time. And I asked, what decision did you want the court to make? That is, a verdict of guilty 
or not guilty. That was one question. A second question was what uh, outcomes would you like the court to arrive at? That was about the sentencing. And then the third set of questions was about what principles did you want the court to apply when making those decisions, justice principles? So in a way, I'm actually asking people as victims quite difficult questions. They are really quite difficult questions. Researchers here at Griffith would say to me, but how would a victim understand a justice principle? And the simple answer is to that is that any of us as human animals, as social beings, have ideas about what justice looks like. Mm. The key is about understanding what criteria we're attaching that particular notion of justice to and what are the circumstances in which we are being asked the justice question. It sounds completely logical. In essence, most of us are pretty good everyday philosophers. <laughs> and then um, I also asked people, okay, if those are the objectives that you have, um, what process would you like in order to achieve those objectives? Now, the substantive question I was interested in was not just revealing how people thought and grappled with this large, very important uh, question about justice, but other debates in the public about what do women who experience domestic violence want? And by and large, the academic debates and even the public policy debates would pose this as either or. Women either want a formal process or an informal resolution. They either want punitive justice responses or restorative justice responses. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm. So that it, it's, it, it becomes as if there are only two choices. And it's, if you get this, then you can't have that. And what did you find? It's a bit more and complex a bit, than that. Way more complex <laughs> than that. And then I asked people a second occasion at the end of the justice process what they now thought and if they had been offered an opportunity for a restorative encounter with the accused person, would they have taken it up? Mm. So on the first occasion at time one it might be surprising to people but the majority of the women did want the court to arrive at a guilty verdict now it's really important to understand the difference between a guilty verdict and the sentence that comes from that many commentators ignore the importance of the decision itself and they just focus on the sentence. Is it a custodial sentence? How long was the custodial sentence? Has the offender been let off lightly? Is it too harsh? Right? And we ignore the importance of the decision itself. The decision itself is so vital for women who've experienced domestic violence. When I ask 
asked what you wanted to achieve and the majority said they wanted a guilty verdict. When I asked why, they said he should be held to account. He should realise what he did was wrong. Um, he should be told to stop. Uh, it was all words like that that were about offender accountability. Mm. Essentially, this person should be held to account. That's what the decision is. Now, why is that so important for victims of domestic violence? The issue about why the decision is so important to victims of domestic violence is that throughout the course of the domestic violence, women are being told, this is your fault. You made me do this. If you didn't do that, then you wouldn't make me do such and such. I don't have to do this. You, there's something you do that, etc. So the confusion about that women experience about their sense of responsibility within what's in essence a relationship and how messy are they is kind of played on, if you like, by the person who uses violence as if it is mutual responsibility, as if it is I'm being driven to use violence against you because you've driven me to that point. You've made me do it. It's I'm not responsible for it. You're responsible for it. So for a woman then to involve police and become involved in a criminal justice process where the other person is charged with a criminal offence, to then hear the law, the magistrate or the judge say, you did this thing. Mm. That's what the verdict is. You are charged with the, say, an offence of occasioning actual bodily harm. You are guilty of doing that thing. Moreover, the verdict also says, in doing that thing, you did wrong. That clears so much air for the person who's the victim of the offence. It's validating for them, I imagine. It's extraordinarily validating, but more than uh, individually validating, that's the contribution that this particular member of the public makes to our social fabric. Because the public court has upheld mm. the idea that violence is wrong, Moreover, that violence in intimate relationships is wrong. And so she's, she's also, I mean, it's a private distress and private harm, but she's now acting in a public sphere as a public citizen, reaffirming to the public at large, yep, we're right, we all agree domestic violence is wrong. And it touches on what we were saying before that really you're talking about changing the language about this. Like perhaps people don't understand what justice principles are, but in a way they do. They just haven't called it that. That's what they're seeking on a philosophical level. But, right. but also we have a responsibility to change the way we talk about this as well. This domestic violence, for example, it's such a topic that everyone seems to have an opinion on, but it's perhaps not terribly helpful or empowering a lot of the time. For many years, 
uh, feminist researchers have argued that domestic violence is a crime like any other. It's uh, an offence against our wider social norms. It should be dealt with in the same type of system, the same public way. That is true. And at the same time, we've learned over 20, 30 years of doing research and working with survivors, indeed working with people who use violence, that it's not the same. It's actually, it is an offence against the, our, our sense of what's right and wrong um, more broadly. And uh, because it takes place within the intimacy of people's relationships, um, it's, it, it touches everything that we want for ourselves as individuals, happy lives, happy relationships, fulfilling relationships, strong families. And we feel as if somehow we've with the ones that have failed. Um, this is why, one of the reasons why so many of the women uh, who I interviewed were still so ambivalent, uh, even though they wanted the verdict of guilty, even though they were the ones who initiated the call to police, even though they wanted him held to account. They were deeply ambivalent. And this ambivalence came out in that other question about how do you want this dealt with. At that first occasion they were interviewed, the majority, um, they fell into two main groups. One group, uh, the majority group, wanted a formal process. The second group, a minority, wanted an informal process. We could describe those different processes as the informal group of being about diversion from the court system uh, and the formal group wanting a formal decision, a formal prosecution and an independent third-party decision-maker who's the judge. So far, so understanding. But remember, this was the first time research like this has been done. In the past, the research that's asked women, would you have liked a kind of informal process or this more formal one, has been asked of women after they've gone through processes and they're looking back. It's a bit late then. <laughs> and it's, it's a bit late then and women have a whole lot more information uh, about, about stuff. The importance of, no, I want the formal decision maker to, make the, for the, to deal with it, goes back to that how important offender accountability is. Mm. I want somebody official to find that he's done wrong that it's not just me saying it. That the criminal justice process in particular is really nervous about including victims. It doesn't like it. It makes it harder. I say we get better justice because we get a, a more rounded sense because of the range of people involved. It doesn't necessarily mean we go with what the victim wants or is asking for, you still have independent decision-making by the third party, that's the judge or the prosecutor or whoever. Um, but we have to find better ways of involving people so that we understand better what they are aspiring to for themselves, for their, the accused person, 
and for their community of others. That's what citizens do. Because, of course, we had the terrible... uh incidents with Hannah Clark and her three children just recently and the great public response to that not really I think in many ways knowing what to do about it other than to really say where, where have we gone wrong what what can we improve in this what what were your thoughts after that is this just another terrible example of domestic violence that happens around us all the time or what where do we yeah. go from here We always hope that a horrible event like the killing of Hannah and her three children will be the turning point. There have been so many turning points. I think for so many women, it's such a difficult set of decisions to think about when somebody is being abusive to you. You do blame yourself. You do have a sense of what aren't I doing right to make this relationship or this marriage work. It's a kind of natural way in which we think about ourselves in relationships. The hard parts are that having that wider window that I mentioned that says, you know when you experience him being really protective and really jealous of you and that's kind of nice, you kind of feel that that's, that makes you feel the centre of his world, you know actually they're not really healthy mm. ideas. You should be able to go see your friends you should be able to get a job that challenges you and enlightens you. You should expect equal sharing of child rearing and house minding and stuff like that. If there might be one other thing uh, that I could say, which comes from my both the, mm. uh, the research that I've done and my subsequent mm. research, which is to say, well, if we want people as victims to participate more fully in these processes, how are we going to enable that to happen? Mm. And so my research mm. since then has been looking at where else in the world have we been creating justice processes that properly equip people to be able to participate, to understand all of those different challenges that are there in a justice process for members of the public. And I describe that as victim advocacy. Uh, this, I, I say, is the third uh, third leg, for want of a better term, of criminal justice, that the defendant has their own representation and a specific uh, independent role. Similarly, the victim should have representation and their own independent role. Now, some victims may not take that up, um, but every victim should have access to uh, equipped, experienced, fully resourced advocacy services that can help them understand what their options are and support them through the processes that are on offer. And are we getting closer to that ideal, do you think? Not really. Again, I think because those uh, existing organisations within criminal justice, uh, prosecution, 
courts and so forth are just so fixed on this particular way of doing things. And it's like we're going to hang on to this particular way of doing things even though the ship's going down because that's the way it's always been done. We're particularly skilled in counselling support, in trauma-informed care. I think we need to build out the skills and experience, expertise, uh, certainly the skills, uh, and certainly to resource the services more, to act as advocates for people in these complicated public institutions like criminal justice. And give them a voice. That will enable members of the public to have a voice. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Robin, so much for, for sharing your research with us here on the Gender Card. Oh, so fantastic. I'm really glad to have been asked. That was postdoctoral research fellow at the Griffith Criminology Institute, Dr. Robin Holder. That's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.